Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. The Grand Slam. It's an impressive feat in baseball and darn near impossible in music. But a few all-stars have achieved four great albums in a row. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. With baseball celebrating opening day, we take a look at rock and roll Grand Slams. And we'll review the latest from The Strokes. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to the Sound Opinions Opening Day Grand Slam. I'm Len Casper, TV voice of the Chicago Cubs. Jim and Greg, let's get some runs. Thanks, Len, for that great lead-in for our first segment, which we're entitling Grand Slams, Grand Slams as they apply to music. In baseball, it's a bases-loaded home run. Runners at first, second, and third, guy hits a home run, knocks in four runs. A pretty rare feat. It's usually a game-changing feat. In music, I would argue that it happens even less, Jim, the idea of making four great studio albums in a row. And I have to say, when when we started this assignment, I thought, you know... It's not going to be that hard because I could think of two or three right off the top of my head. But then once you get beyond that, you realize a lot of great artists, a lot of great bands stop after two or three great albums in a row. It's really yeah. hard to get those four in a row. I got to say, in addition to my aversion to all things sport, <laughs> uh, you know, this was the hardest trivia kind of rock history show we've ever done. But I, I think I got a good list and I know you do. Yes, we do. I'm going to start out with uh, Stevie Wonder. The run of four that I want to go with is one of the strongest four album runs that any artist made in any era. And I'm talking about 1972 with Talking Book, 1973 with Inner Visions, 1974 with Fulfillingness's first finale. That's a mouthful. It's a tough one. And then in 1976, Songs in the Key of Life. Stevie had a string of hits for Motown in the 60s as, as a relatively young artist, most of them done as a teenager. Once he turned 21, he signed a new contract with Motown, and I think uh, it was just in the air. The album was in the air as, as more of a conceptual piece of work rather than a collection of singles. Marvin Gaye had come out with uh, what's going on, his Motown peer, 
And Sly and the Family Stone was upping the ante in the way that he was merging rock and soul and psychedelia. So Stevie was hearing this music, obviously influenced by the Beatles as well, the Rolling Stones, and he started thinking in terms of making an entire song cycle. The first in that run, 1972 Talking Book, I think the first unified statement of his career. Themes of love and politics, superstition as a great anchor single, followed by 1973's Inner Visions, heavy social political commentary, and also spiritual concerns when he was talking about meditation and, and spirituality as being a way out of some of these traps. Followed it up in 74 with his most introspective album of that era, fulfilling us his first finale. It's not as cohesive as Inner Visions and Talking Book, but excellent songs all the way through. You know, the stages of love and politics. He's sort of following the arc of a love affair here. And then after a, uh, a near-fatal car accident, coming back in 76 with what a lot of people consider his masterpiece, Songs in the Key of Life, really upping the ante in terms of his ambition. And I think the one unifying theme in that record is just just the joy of being alive. You can hear the celebration of Sir Duke and celebrating his newborn child and Isn't She Lovely. So a great four-album run from Stevie Wonder. I want to play a track from what I consider the best album in that four-album run. It is my personal favorite, the 1973 Inner Visions album, where I think he pulled it all together. Here's the track Living for the City from Stevie Wonder on Sound Opinions. His first is black, but she is shown the pretty. Her skirt is short, but Lord, her legs are sturdy. To walk to school, she's got to get up early. Her clothes are old, but never are Living for the City from Stevie Wonder, his 1973 Inner Visions album. Part of his Grand Slam. Four great albums in a row. So, Jim, uh, you got to hit one out of the park with the bases loaded. 
Give me, give me four great albums in a row. What's the, what's the first? Are, are we going to go through about? this whole show with sports uh, cliches? Because I don't know any. It's like this. This episode of Sound Opinions <laughs> will be recorded in Esperanto, and Jim yeah. will have no idea what is going on. Uh, you got to go to some canonical great all time. So obvious, duh, choices when you're talking about four wonderful albums in a row. I'm going with Zeppelin. Of all the bands that, that you and I instantly thought of when we thought of the Grand Slam concept, there's only one that I've got a tattoo of, and it's my Zeppelin bottom three rings symbol on the bass drum foot. Some people would start the four-album run, I think, with Led Zeppelin 1 in 1969 because that set the template for the Zeppelin sound. The bluesier stretches there that are still really Jimmy Page segueing from the Yardbirds, I'm not as fond of. I start the string with Led Zeppelin 2 in 1969. The fact that the first album and the second album both came out in the same year is evidence of how much talent and how many ideas this band had. But with Zeppelin 2, they had that wonderful hard proto-heavy metal, and they were never just a heavy metal band. It was a hard rock band. Stomp, that would become a Zeppelin hallmark, but also the light touch with melody and the wonderful production tricks. Now, one thing I noticed when tabulating Grand Slams is there often is a sleeper album somewhere in the middle of the string of four masterpieces, a breather, if you will. And that's where we as critics are going to have to stretch to really make the case that this is a masterpiece, even though it's not as immediate as some of the other records. Led Zeppelin III, released in 1970, the second in my string of four masterpieces from Zepp, is the record they recorded out in the countryside in Wales, writing the songs in a cottage hanging out as a group, Robert Plant's fondness for Fairport Convention and the incredible string band coming to the fore, Page's virtuosity as a finger picker, and also John Paul Jones as a multi-instrumental genius, all coming out in softer, wonderful, melodic songs, and then you still have Bonham as the brontosaur that stomps through the room in the middle of the night. It's wonderful. Zeppelin IV, Stairway to Heaven, When the Levee Breaks, two of the greatest songs in rock history. Enough said... And then I think my personal favorite is 1973's Houses of the Holy. By this point, Zeppelin had showed us everything they could do. Psychedelic Zeppelin, uh, hard rock Zeppelin, pop Zeppelin, blues Zeppelin, to be sure. I was really torn. I was either going to do Dancing Days from Houses of the Holy in 73, but I want to play a song that that showcases the range of this band, so I'm going to go back further. There's a wonderful little sleeper of a tune on Led Zeppelin 2, Thank You, which is a beautiful very 60s sounding pop song it's a love song and it's it's heartfelt it shifts into almost a birds like pop song at one point there's some wonderful keyboard some wonderful dainty stuff and yet you know you still have the bottom stomp which gives it this grounding so this is thank you from led zeppelin 2 one of a string of four masterpieces in 1969 on sound opinions if the sun refused to shine I would still be loving you When mountains crumble to the sea There will still be you and me
That is Thank You from Led Zeppelin. Jim DeRogatis citing four great Led Zeppelin albums in a row. You know, Jim, I would make the case for the first album. I would disagree with you on that point. I think they made five amazing albums in a row. And you might make the case for Physical Graffiti as well. So if let's it was go to a six. single album, yeah, you, you would make the case for Physical Graffiti. Yeah. I'm going to fast forward about three decades to uh, Sleater Kinney, a great band out of Olympia, Washington. Came out of that riot girl scene in the early 90s. Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein were big players in that scene. A very small insular scene at the time. Really wasn't a national phenomenon until this band, I would argue, really kind of took it there. When they joined forces, Tucker and Brownstein, initially as a side project in the band they called Sleater Kinney, They weren't really sure that they were going to make more than one album. That self-titled debut album in 1995, pretty good record. But it was in 1996 with the Call the Doctor record where the string of greatness really began their second album. The songwriting took a massive leap forward. Tucker and Brownstein trading off vocals, trading off guitar licks. And I think one of the keys to a lot of these bands, at least some of the bands that I'm going to cite here, is the trade-off between two great songwriters. It has a sort of sustaining power for those bands where they're almost trying to outdo each other. They followed with Dig Me Out in 1997, which I consider their finest album. The Rock came full force on this record. And I think the key for this band, the turning point, besides Brownstein and Tucker, Writing those songs together was the addition of Janet Weiss on drums, one of the great powerhouse drummers of the era, still one of the great drummers in rock and roll. In 99, the hot rock. Here's, you know, Jimmy, you made a great point. There's usually one album in that string that sort of sticks out and say, is that really a great record? Yeah. And I think it, in some ways it's a little bit of a left turn for the band, so we have a little more difficult time processing it. I think for Sleater Kinney fans, that album was the hot rock in 99. More sophisticated, less rock, more introspective, fuller arrangements, uh, a lot more Janet Weiss on backing vocals. I think it's a great record. I think it really holds up over time. And then in 2000, All Hands on the Bad One. Everything that the hot rock wasn't, this album was because of its accessibility. Very much of a pop-centric kind of record. It's too 
bad. One Beat's an okay record in 2002. I think The Woods was another great album, the album that they chose to end on <laughs> in 2005. So I'm, I'm going to go four out of five here with Sleater Kinney. I just got to insert here that I respect Sleater <laughs> Kinney, but I don't think they made one masterpiece in a row. I know. We've argued about this before. But we to, have. To my mind, uh, over the last two decades, they've been as good a, a rock band as we've had. Here's the title track from the 1997 Dig Me Out album from Sleater Kinney on Sound Opinions. out from Sleater Kinney, one of the bands that I think delivered four great albums in a row. Greg, I've said it. It was hard coming up with these lists. I would love to hear you, the listener, tell us who makes your fantasy roster for great Grand Slam artists. Call us at 888-859-1800. Now, over to you, Len Casper. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Jim and Greg try to hit some more Grand Slams. Then later in the show, the boys review the new album from The Strokes.
It might be, it could be, it is the Sound Opinions Grand Slam. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner over there with the baseball hat on is Greg Cott. That was Len Casper, the TV voice of the Chicago Cubs. I think they're a football team here in Chicago. And he's been helping us <laughs> with our opening day Grand Slam. I gather that is some sort of sports phrase relating to basketball with four <laughs> points in a row. We're taking that, bringing it to the music world, which I do understand, four masterpiece albums in a row. I'm going to the UK again for Blur. I think Leisure, their 1991 debut, was a mere warm-up, a bit of a copycat record to the Manchester scene. They begin to come into their own with their first masterpiece, according to me, their second album, Modern Life is Rubbish, released in 1993. A wonderful new millennial update on psychedelic pop. Then comes their masterpiece, hugely considered so, Hark Life, a great record released in 1994 that is, for the era, for the time and place, what Quadrophenia was for the mod era. The Great Escape is the sleeper in the string. I think the key to understanding the record is appreciating the song Country House. Again, often one album in a string of four where the band's taken a breather. I like that album a lot. I think a lot of people wouldn't consider it as much, as great a masterpiece as Park Life. But, you know, as critics, we're limited to the four-star scale, right? I mean, you know, you can't say five stars on the four-star scale. These are all four-star albums. The string ends with Blur, the fifth studio album, self-titled in 1997, where Graham Coxon, the instrumental powerhouse of the band, really pushes Damon Albarn, the main songwriter and the singer, later well-known as the guy behind Gorillaz and a prolific solo artist, pushes him toward American indie rock. But this is a particularly, peculiarly British take on American indie rock. They're, they're, they're way interested in Guided by Voices and especially Pavement at this point. And they come out with these wonderful, short, sharp, explosive punk rock songs like Song 2. I think Blur is a, a greatly underrated band. You know, here in the United States, Oasis is considered to have won the great rivalry between those two bands, and certainly Oasis was the one filling arenas. But Blur is the one that people are going to come back to 40 years after these albums and say, wow, what an extraordinary string of records. I'm going to go to Park Life. I'm going to play a song in honor of our producer, Jason, called Tracy Jacks. It's the second track on the album. It follows that wonderful breakthrough single, Girls and Boys. Tracy Jacks, to me, is every bit the masterpiece that David Watts was for the Kinks. Here is a guy I hang out with in the pub, and I am going to give you a brilliant sociological portrait of him that is also an incredible, unforgettable rock song. Tracy Jacks by Blur on Sound Opinions. Tracy Jacks works in civil service. Tracy Jacks is steady employment. 
Tracy Jacks by Blur from 1994's Park Life on Sound Opinions. What do you got? In the last decade, I, I thought about, okay, who in the last, you know, 10, 15 years has put out four great albums in a row? You know, I started with my favorite artists of the last decade. You know, I think Kanye West and LCD Sound System have both been the most consistent Now, LCD never got to four albums. They made those three great studio albums and then called it a day. Too bad. But Kanye's got five in a row, and I'm going to go with the first four. I think the first four records really hold up. The way he's bridged hip-hop and pop and still has managed to sound cutting-edge is really quite an accomplishment. Uh, Starting out with the College Dropout record in 2004, he had been a producer up to that point. There was grave doubts about whether this guy was going to make it on his own as an artist, as an MC. Could he rap? And I think he answered that question, not so much because he's the greatest rapper or got the greatest flow, but he's got great ideas and great personality. You know, he's rapping about working these lousy minimum wage jobs on that debut record and talking openly about his struggles with faith in a song like Jesus Walks. Really an impressive debut record, one of the best albums of that year. You know what the Midwest is, young and restless, or restless, might snatch your necklace. The next these might jack your Lexus, somebody teddy who Kanye West is. He followed up in 2005 with late registration. Again, a daring move, collaborating with a singer, songwriter, producer, arranger out of Los Angeles named John Bryan, who's been a guest on this show brought him in for the late registration record, and I think it's Kanye's most impressive musical achievement just for the range of musical styles that he addressed on that record. Then we have the 2007 graduation record. A lot of synth and techno influences. He was taking in a lot of club music at the time. You hear a lot of Daft Punk influence on this record, and at the same time combining it with some shades of vulnerability that were creeping into his music. You could see Kanye saying, you know... I have doubts about myself. I know you think I'm an egotist. Well, i got some problems with the way I've been behaving as well and sort of opening up about this in a way that you don't often hear in hip-hop. And then here's the red herring, you know, the 808s and Heartbreak album in 2008. The whole idea of Kanye attempting to sing, auto-tuned or not, sounds like a disaster in the making, you know. Here's another sports analogy for you here, Jim. Michael Jordan wants to play baseball, you know? Greatest basketball player on earth decides, okay, I'm going to try another sport. Kanye pulls it off, and 
for me, this is the album that resonates deepest on a lot of levels. I talked about the vulnerability that was starting to creep in on the graduation record. I think it's full force here. And I think 808s and Heartbreak is one of the most influential records he's made. If you listen to what's happening in R&B and hip-hop in the last few years, Kid Cudi, The Weeknd, Frank Ocean, even the last Justin Timberlake record, heavily influenced by, I think, what Kanye was doing on 808s and Heartbreak. Let's play a track from Kanye West from this great run of albums. The track is called Roses from the late registration record in 2005 on Sound Opinions. I know it's past vision and hours, but can I please give her these flowers? The doctor don't want to take procedures. He claim my heart can't take the anesthesia. It'll send a body into a seizure. The little thing by the hospital bed, it'll stop beeping. Hey, chick, I'm at a loss for words. What do you say at this time? Remember when I was nine? Tell her everything gonna be fine, but I'd be lying. The family crying. They wanted to live, and she trying. I'm arguing, like, what kind of doctor can we find? You know, the best medicine go to people that's paid. If Magic Johnson got a cure for AIDS and all the broke passed away you telling me if my grandma's in the nba right now she'll be okay but since she was just a secretary worked for the church for 35 years things supposed to stop right here my grandfather trying to pull it together he's strong that's where i get my confidence from ask the nurse did you do the research she asked me can you sign some t-shirts is you smoking you don't see that we hurt but still I Room, room, you can feel my heartbeat, beat, beat. If she gon' pull through, we gon' find out soon. But right now she sleep, sleep, sleep. My mama say they say she could pass away any day. Hey chick, what these doctors know anyway? Let me see the x-rays. I ain't no expert, I'm just hurt. Cousin Kim took off of work. Plus my aunt Shirley, Aunt Beverly, Aunt Clay, and Aunt Jean. So many aunties, we could have an auntie team. Feel like A. Marie, it's just one thing. When they said that she made it, you see the eyes gleam. I think we at an all-time high to get there. We run, we fly, we drive. Cause with my family, we know where home is. So instead of sending flowers, we the roses. That is Kanye West with Roses, and really, honestly, everybody listening, if you think you don't like Kanye West just because of his public persona, listen to the music. They really are great records. Greg, I'm going to some artists that we don't talk about on Sound Opinions nearly enough, and yet I know you love them. I love them. I think the fact they have not been active hardly at all in the new millennium it makes them easy to forget. But I will actually argue here and mean it sincerely that XTC made seven albums Seven masterpieces in a row. Like Led Zeppelin, the first album is pretty much a write-off. There are hints of what the band will become, but the sound hasn't gelled in 1978 when XTC premieres with white music. It all comes together a year later, uh, less than a year, the go-to record. You have this wonderful, angular attempt to take very complicated, very smart Beatles-esque pop and put it into the new wave mold of hyper-energetic, edgy, angular rhythms, jagged edges, wonderful songs like Mechanic Dancing and Battery Brides and Are You Receiving Me? Drums and Wires pushes that sound a little bit 
further in 1979. Another set of unforgettable songs from Andy Partridge and his sometimes songwriting partner, Colin Moulding, making plans for Nigel. When you're near me, I have difficulty. Ten feet tall. Then comes the beginning of the psychedelic era. Black Sea, released in 1980. That wonderful album cover of them in the deep sea diver suits. They're beginning to get into their rubber soul revolver period. Some very complicated melodies, some, some ornate production. Then the masterpiece in the psychedelic mold, English Settlement. Album number five from XTC, fourth in a string of brilliant records. 1982, a lot of 12-string acoustic guitar added to that new wave psychedelic pop propulsion. I would say the string continues. Mummer in 1983, the Big Express back to pop in 1984, and then Skylarking really capping the string in 86, where everything came together under producer Todd Rundgren, all the elements of the sounds that had been on all the preceding records. I said seven, I just named six. In between The Big Express and Skylarking, they took a detour, released an album under a pseudonym as the Dukes of Stratosphere. It was a straight-on, psychedelic, 1967, day-glow, paisley pop homage. Mini record, I would include that as masterful mm. as well. What a great band. I was literally torn between which of 50 songs to play, but I'm going to go with something from Black Sea. The tune is called Generals and Majors. I think as an anti-war anthem, it is every bit as powerful lyrically, intellectually, as Bob Dylan's Masters of War. Yet, it has this wonderful XTC joyful spirit. There are 16 hooks in three minutes. You don't get that with Dylan. Here it is, XTC on Sound Opinions.
XTC with Generals and Majors, a band that Jim DeRogatis argues has made seven, not just four great albums in a row, but seven great albums in a row. And i got to say, it's pretty hard to toss one out of there and say it's not any good. There's a few bands that we're leaving out here. You ain't going to hear any Roxy music. You're not going to hear any Dylan. You're not going to hear any Rolling Stones. I would say all of those groups had great four-album runs. A Sly Stone. Masterpieces, albums number two and three, and then five and six. It's the fourth one that kind of uh, falls flat. Right. But with this band, no doubt about it, uh, Husker Du owned the 80s, beginning with the 1984 double album, Zen Arcade, which was, you know, unheard of idea. Okay, this this indie band out of Minneapolis is going to make a double album on this, you know, incredibly tight budget. They basically recorded the entire thing in a day. You know, it just blew everybody's minds when it came out, uh, and well, it should have. You had everything in that record in terms of avant-garde music to hard-edge pop-punk, these psychedelic blowouts, you had instrumentals, you had acoustic touches. They followed it up in 1985 with New Day Rising and Flip Your Wig, two masterpieces in one year. And we talked about the songwriting uh, tandem in Sleater Kinney, Carrie Brownstein and Corin Tucker. In Husker Du, it was Bob Mould and Grant Hart making each other better. There was a not-so-subtle competition between those two to write the best songs on each record, and they really did push each other to some of the greatest work of their careers. And New Day Rising and Flip Your Wig were the, the, the most song-oriented records that they cut, both incredibly inventive and both incredibly influential. And then Candy Apple Grey, here's the red herring for Husker Du for some fans, the 1986 record. I would argue, major step forward here, starting to show some more introspection. You had those two great acoustic pieces by Bob Mould on that yeah. on that album, anchoring that record. You know, a track like Hardly Getting Over It, I think, is one of the best things he'd done during that era, showing a completely different side of the band. And Hart keeping up the pace with uh, the great pop touches that he would throw in with Don't Want to Know If You Are Lonely and Sorry Somehow. Here's, I think, an example of the great pop meets post-punk songwriting that the band brought to the equation. The Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill, Grant Hart on lead vocals from the New Day Rising record, my favorite Husker Du record on Sound Opinions.
girl who lives on Heaven Hill from Husker Du, a great four-album run in the 80s. And Jim, I think in some ways we're saving the best for last. Well, we are. There were a couple of names that when we introduced this concept, we threw out because you got to claim them first. And then we went into our separate corners like two boxers. In, that's the sweet sport, right? <laughs> yeah. And and came up with others. We were going to fight over Zeppelin. We were going to fight over Husker Du. We were going to fight over the Velvet Underground. We are both huge fans. All modern music can be traced directly to the Velvet Underground. The late rock critic Lester Banks said that. It is certainly true of everything that has happened in rock and roll since the Velvet Underground broke up in 1970. There is some Velvets in everything. The debut album, The Velvet Underground and Nico, produced his name was on the cover by Andy Warhol. 1967 actually sets the template for everything that would follow. All four albums, four studio albums, four masterpieces. It's very much a contrast to every other band I chose as a Grand Slam because the first album for everybody else was the warm-up record and then came a string of masterpieces. For the Velvets, they had the blueprint in place right from the beginning. Lou Reed and John Cale with the noise epics, the quieter folk songs, the avant-garde, the rock and roll, the pop. It was all there on songs like Sunday Morning and I'm Waiting for the Man and Venus and Furs and Run, Run, Run and the Black Angels Death Song. Mm. Oh, my God. All right. Maybe the choice of his fate set themselves out upon a plate for him to choose. What had he to lose? Not a ghost bloody country all covered with sleep where the black angel did weep. Not an old city street in the east. Gone to White Light, White Heat in 1968 furthers the noise exploration. There are quiet moments, here she comes now, but the epic of Sister Ray and that merging of free jazz noise exploration with rock and roll. You know, there is no Sonic Youth, there is no alternative rock, no Melvins, no, no Nirvana in its nasty mode without White Light, White Heat. Then comes the Quiet album, The Sleeper, 1969, self-titled The Velvet Underground. Candy Says, an incredibly empathetic song about a man who undergoes a sex change operation, beginning to see the light, a song of redemption from the darkest depths, and nobody did dark depths <laughs> ever better than The Velvet Underground. Then comes Loaded in 1970. The pop record. Why was it called Loaded? Because Lou Reed said it was loaded with hits. Who Loves the Sun, Sweet Jane, Rock and Roll, Cool It Down, New Age, one unforgettable pop rock anthem after another. All of that was predicted by the first album. All of it was perfected on albums two, three, and four. I'm going to go with The Noise. But it's The Noise married memorably with the pop. For my money, though everybody talks about Sister Ray, I heard her call my name has all the furious intensity, the insane amelodic cacophony of those guitars that are in Sister Ray, but paired with this very traditional kind of 50s, 60s pop song. You know, I heard her call my name. Why did he hear her call his name? Because he was going insane, and then his <laughs> mind split open, and then the guitar solo from hell happens not <laughs> once but twice. My God, from the first time I've heard this album, it thrilled me and it scared me, and it still does 30 years later. That's what great rock and roll does, kids. I heard her call my name by the Velvet Underground from 1968's White Light, White Heat on Sound Opinions. Here it comes countdown, countdown. Gone, gone, gone. Got my eyes wide open. It's as it was on people Monday or 
got my eyeballs on my knees. I'm David Walker. I'm Rafa Owsley. Mad Mary Williams. Stretch never understood a word for me because I know that you cares about me. I heard her call my name from the Velvet Underground. No doubt, four great, four masterpieces. Let's just call it four masterpieces. Indisputable. To see all of our Grand Slams, four great albums in a row, visit soundopinions.org. And we want to hear your all star nominations. Call 888 859 Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Jim and Greg review the new strokes. Jody Mansion's done it again. Some folks thought Big Joe was done. Some just figured Joe was gone. Steps to the batter with a great big grin. Jody Mansion's done it again. I'm gonna tell you just the way I feel. Man can't run without his heel. Watch that raggy fill, split the wind. Jody Maggio's done it again. All three fielders jump their best. Trying to climb that outboard fence. They outgrow whiskers on their chin. Jody Maggio's done it again. Up along the clouds where the eagles roam. Jody crack that ball. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is The Strokes with a song called One Way Trigger from their fifth album, Come Down Machine. The Strokes were the story of 2001 when they debuted with Is This 
it, a record that pretty much convinced people that rock and roll was alive in the new millennium. It had survived the InSync's and the Backstreet Boys. Together with the White Stripes, the Strokes were going to show us the post-Nirvana way to rock and roll. Five New Yorkers heavily steeped in that subway train New York City rhythm. It made a huge splash both in the UK and the US. The second and third albums, they were struggling a bit. It was hard to match the explosion of energy and that seemingly fresh sound of Is This It? Then they took a hiatus, and everybody in the band, I mean everybody, including the drummer Fabrizio Moretti, started making solo albums. They reconvened after Julian Casablancas made his solo album, Phrases for the Young, started to tour. Now comes album number five, Come Down Machine. Let's play a track, and then we'll come back and give our opinions. This is a song called 80s Come Down Machine by The Strokes on Sound Opinions. Come Down Machine from The Strokes. The new album is called Come Down Machine. 80s, that's very important to mention 80s because I think Julian Casablancas, who's basically the songwriter, calls all the shots in this band, is very much referencing the 80s in this record. A little flock of seagulls in here, technotronic, kind of a plastic soul, new wave, synth pop kind of vibe here, which should come as no big surprise to anybody who heard Julian Casablancas's solo record, Phrases for the Young, in 2009, and the second half of the last Strokes album, Angles. This band could not be any more removed from the sound they gave us on that Is This It record in 2001 that you mentioned, Jim. When they do revisit that sound, or two or three rockers where you do hear the guitars and a little hint of that sort of subway train rhythm that they had going on where they were referencing Velvets, New York Dolls, Feelies, yeah. um, it, they sound tired. But they sound equally out of their element when they're doing this synth-pop type stuff. Casablanca seems to gravitate more towards the slower more falsetto-oriented vocals. Some of that stuff works. I do like the, the track Slow Animals. 
I think the track we just played with that sort of ambient Beach Boys type of sound is kind of creepy and eerie and moody and cool in a way. But most of this album does not work. It sounds very chilly, overproduced. It sounds like the Strokes are not a band anymore. It's Julian Casablancas and four anonymous guys in the studio. It's a disappointing record. Here's a band that I think was on top of the world a decade ago and could have owned it. And now they've just frittered away all the goodwill. This is a trash record for me. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's absolutely a trash record. The Strokes <laughs> have yeah. broken my heart. <laughs> Yet another string of one of those rock and roll heartbreaks. You know, look at how much Jack White has done with a relatively simple formula. And I always put the Strokes and the White Stripes together because they did debut as the new garage rock circa 2000, 2001. Jack White goes back to that same well again and again and mm. again. And like the Ramones, does something new every time. Perhaps the Strokes could continue to mine that Velvet subway track rhythm. And with each new Strokes release, you, you think more harshly of everything else. It's like that you, all you need to own is that first record. It was one thing in 2011 and on parts of Phrases for the Young in 2009 for the Strokes or Casablancas to be ripping off the cars. It's another thing for the Strokes and Casablancas <laughs> to be ripping off. Aha! This yeah. is in no way, shape, or form acceptable. And those soulful, quote-unquote, falsettos. I mean, they're mm. just dreadful. This is a dreadful record. This is like a parody of a bad <laughs> Strokes record. Double trash it from the two of us. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit and an interview with an intriguing UK singer-songwriter named Emily Sunday. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn, Jason Saldana, and Annie Minoff. Special thanks to Len Casper and our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. Baseball has been a better bit good to him. For Sound Opinions, I'm Len Casper. See you at the ballpark. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, how's it going, guys? This is Eric from Wichita, Kansas. I'm calling to talk about the Justin Timberlake review of his new album, The 2020 Experience. I'm not a great big fan of pop music. In fact, I don't listen to a whole heck of a lot of it. When I was younger, I used to study the top 40. Now I just avoid it. I'm a hipster snob. But I got to tell you guys, both of you need to seek counseling for this crack rock habit you have that obscures how freaking good this album is. I can't wait till I get you on the floor good looking. And to hear you guys just, like, trash it and burn it, it's like you're listening to a completely different album. Justin Timberlake makes pop music that underground folks can actually embrace and dig. Come on, get some counseling and keep up the good work. She's so Hi, this is Manya from New Jersey. I can't believe how you guys misjudged the new Justin Timberlake album. Please let me preface this by saying I am not young, and my tastes run toward indie blues, rock, and classic R&B. 
But I have to say there is a gap in the modern music scene left by Michael Jackson, Marvin Gaye, Prince, Smokey Robinson, etc. And that is a multi-talented man, confident and capable enough to sing a catchy or emotional falsetto. Suit and Tie is light, breezy, fun. If Push a Love Girl was off of a Michael Jackson album, we'd be calling it a classic. Is it a serious album? Of course not. But it is way, way fun. I think you need to ask your grown-up wives or girlfriends how they feel about it. Hi, Jim and Greg. I'm Sharon from Los Angeles, and I just listened to your review of David Bowie's new album, and I just have to take issue with you, Jim. Look, I can understand if Bowie is just not your cup of tea, but... Why did you have to single out Aladdin Sane for your particular scorn? I just recently listened to that album again after probably 30 years, and you know what? Aladdin Sane is not just a great glam rock era album. It's a great album, period. What about Drive-In Saturday and Gene Genie and that amazing twisted insane piano solo on the title track? I mean, it's so good. Thank you, Greg, for sticking up for Bowie. I agree with everything you said. But I love you both anyway. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Alan calling from Los Angeles. I just wanted to say I listened to the Bowie review after listening to the Bowie album on Spotify. And I could not agree more. Jim, you nailed it. Bowie has, uh, I've always said that Bowie does nothing but grab what was ever bubbling under the scene in whatever club he was hanging out at in the 70s and the 60s, and recording that music, making it popular. He had a tremendous ear for that, for that which was about to explode. The same way that Bon Jovi is really good at taking whatever's popular at the time, be it country or in sync type boy band rock, and making it uh, their own and selling millions of copies of that. In other words, David Bowie, John Bon Jovi, one and the same. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.